The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. And welcome, welcome to a special Friday edition of Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza in San Francisco. Today, the Dow closed in the green for the 10th day in a row. It's the longest rally in six years, but tech? Tech has cooled off this week. And just ahead of the mega cap earnings parade, we've got Google, Microsoft, Meta, Intel. Those are the names up next week. Amazon and Apple, the following. Like last quarter at the Magic Bullet, it may be artificial intelligence, but simply mentioning AI a few times on your earnings call, or maybe many times, it's not going to cut it. We're now in a new show-me-the-money era. NVIDIA was one of the last tech giants to report last time around. You might remember its monster surge showing investors AI is here, and it's going to book revenue, a lot of it, this year. So even though we are still in such early innings companies, they are already charging for products. Microsoft announcing earlier this week that it would be charging for its AI tools and shares promptly hit an all-time high. The price, $30 per user per month. Pretty steep price and very different than the era of tech when products like Gmail were given away for free. One analyst estimates it could generate some $14 billion in new revenue a year for Microsoft. It's important that investors see that monetization. Here's why. Seven companies, you may know them as the Magnificent Seven, they are carrying the market right now, making up an eye-watering 30% of the S&P 500, driven by expectations for AI and how it will generate new business. Three Three of them report next week, and because expectations are so high, even a wobble from any one of them could shake the entire market Let's discuss this. Rory O'Driscoll of Scale Venture Partners, Nilay Patel of The Verge, and our own Steve Kovac. Welcome, gentlemen, to the show. Nilay, I'm going to start with you. Few can do what NVIDIA did, and that is book actual billions in extra revenue on this AI shift. So what do you think? Should investors get ready for some disappointment? You know, the really interesting thing about NVIDIA is how much risk they took building out this capacity before the AI boom. So I think you're really seeing the upside of that risk pay off. I think the question for all of these companies now that Microsoft pricing is really interesting. It's experimental pricing. I don't know if it's worth $30. Mm -hmm. The market has to decide, and there's competition. So I think we're all seeing, okay, these products are inherently useful such that we can already put prices on them. People want them. We can charge for them. How much can we charge in an era where there's this much competition? That's going to come all the way back to NVIDIA. Yeah, I mean, $30 per user per month. Yeah, at the high end, see Kovac. $14 $14 billion potentially, but how certain is that? They, they're not going to be booking this when they report next week. No, they're not. And look, they don't even have a date on when this is going to be broadly available. Right now, they're only testing that co-pilot we're talking about with the Microsoft 365 suite, a very small group of their current enterprise customers. And look, they're not even talking about selling it to schools yet for the very obvious chat GPT cheating reasons. But there's another thing to look at, too, Deirdre, as as we go into uh, Microsoft's earnings next quarter. It's not just about selling these uh, co-pilots or other AI tools. It's also a cloud play because because, look, Microsoft also, the same day they announced that pricing plan, they announced this deal with Facebook that their large language model, the Llama, the open source one, 
is going to run on Azure. It's going to run on Windows. And so Microsoft is also saying, our cloud is here for other AI development open to play. Right. Amazon is trying that as well. Google is trying that as well. But Microsoft is playing it on both sides. Right. So more opportunity to book some revenue and thus profit. Rory, by the way, thank you for being with me in sure. studio on Delighted. Friday. Um, give me the counterpoint. You're venture, you operate in sure. the world of venture capital. So you are investing many times before there's yeah. even any revenue. You don't want to get these stocks once they've already booked this money, right? Because then the upside is gone. Totally. So how should investors look at it? Sure. Well, I mean, it depends on where you're investing. I mean, I think, first of all, to talk about the public stocks, I think what NVIDIA is going through is a quantum step different than everyone else. No one else is going to report a 40% increase in Q1Q revenue because of AI. NVIDIA is a monopoly provider of this, the, the core ingredient that makes all this AI work, the chip that makes the magic happen. Mm -hmm. right? They're in a wonderful business. Will they be in a wonderful business for the next 37 years to justify the stock price? I don't have a clue. right? But even Microsoft, who probably is the next best positioned right. large cap company, it's going to be a quantum step different. They're not, as someone Steve said, they're not going to sell 40% more. They're not going to, they might get a few people trying this office product you know, in the next couple of quarters. It's not going to move the needle. What will move the needle is they're a very well-run business. Okay, so there's That's, NVIDIA. Yeah. Eli, there's NVIDIA, and then maybe there's the Microsoft, the Amazons, the Googles that, um, okay, maybe they're further behind, but let's say they're closer to booking this revenue than the Palantirs and the C3 AIs and some of that next level down tech companies. So how does this shape out? I think that point about NVIDIA being a monopoly provider is really smart. At the end of the day, NVIDIA took the big risk early and now they're it. They're what you get. You know, we have heard many stories about companies essentially trying to buy their way into monopoly positions. Lyft and Uber come to mind, right? Big <laughs> venture-backed companies that basically bought themselves into monopolies. How durable those monopolies and profitable those monopolies are uh, it, it remains to be seen. NVIDIA knows it. And the big difference between, I think, AI and every other tech bubble that I've ever talked to you about, Deirdre, is everyone <laughs> knows it's many. useful. Right, you like you can charge for this at rates that make sense to consumers, that make sense to businesses, because the productivity gain is there in a way that I don't know NFTs or even 5G wasn't there, and I think that piece of the puzzle mm. is still undervalued in the market. I, I agree. I, I think it absolutely is useful. And that is the reason why. I don't think Microsoft are going to get that money this quarter, but eventually they will, because AI is absolutely useful. I mean, the reasons they're charged, they're going to charge for it. I mean, you were asking, why are people trying to charge? It's First of all, because you can charge, because it's delivering value, it's replacing labor, it's replacing time, boring tasks. Right. It actually causes you to save costs. It causes you to save money. Rest. And then the second mm -hmm. thing is, it costs money to do this, right? Um, all these guys are, you know, leveraging off the expense of NVIDIA chips, the expense of ChatGPT you know, chat mm -hmm. is not free for anyone other than a casual user. All that's going to cost money. So a lot of these AI products are very computationally intensive to deliver. It's not as easy as it looks. You know, the magic under the hood can be quite expensive. And we're definitely seeing that even at the early stages. It costs mm -hmm. a lot of money to build these companies. And as you correctly said, the pressure is therefore on to monetize that and get paid. Show the dollars. Yeah, no one's going to fund okay. them forever. Well, Steve Kovac, I mean... Yes, everyone's excited about generative AI. Um, it costs a lot of money in terms of that compute power. But we recently got a report that Apple is looking at its own large language model. How do we know that this isn't eventually commoditized? Like a lot of the other bubbles we've talked about. I mean, we were so excited about enterprise software, right? In 2021, they were going public and running up to these huge valuations. How do we know that aspects of generative AI, like these chatbots, aren't going to become um, commoditized? And 
Microsoft can't charge 30 bucks I, per user per month. I'd argue to a degree it's already commoditized. Just look at my inbox, all the pitches I get for chatbots and ChatGPT clones and, and so on and so forth. Go in the app store and type in <laughs> ChatGPT and you'll get a gazillion uh, different results. But look, when you talk about those Magnificent Seven, one thing that we got to look about going into this earnings season starting next week is that forward P.E. ratios, Deirdre, I bet, and how expensive these stocks have gotten. So you set this up really nicely, how we're going into this earnings season where they have to show the money. Well, also, if they don't show the money, we can easily see those stocks come down because of how expensive they've gotten <laughs> over this A.I. hype. So has yeah. it been commoditized? Maybe a little bit, uh, but look, only a few names are going to actually be able to show. To your point about Apple, look, it, to me, it sounds like more of a developer tool. I don't think they're going to have some mm. kind of supercharged uh, Siri GPT, or I think the report said something like Apple GPT is what they're calling it internally. I think that's more of a demonstration. Obviously, we also know Apple's going to want to do it in a more private way on device, which also means less capability, yeah. because if you're doing it on a phone, you can't use those NVIDIA chips that are more capable than uh, those mobile processors. Good point. Where Th this is one of those times where you see a single sentence and you realize it's simply two sentences, and it's just totally wrong. Tech earnings are next year, AI monetization happening slowly. The two are utterly disconnected. Stop, people, right? I think, Isn't no. this the quarter that changes? I no, mean, that, that no. was the case until NVIDIA yeah, said, no, 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 it's but, actually but here. Is, but I'll address that very specifically. What you've got to understand is the value chain, uh, how long it takes before end business customers pay money. NVIDIA is going first because they make the chip that allows people to make the models. Mm -hmm. Then someone's got to make the models. And someone said, ChatGPT have made, you know, OpenAI have made the ChatGPT model. It's taken them two or three years to get to that point. Everyone is furiously trying to catch up. And maybe it gets commoditized, but right now it's still the best, objectively okay. speaking. And there's maybe five, six, seven other people trying to catch up. And the reason NVIDIA is doing so well, all of those companies, including Microsoft, including Facebook, are spending hundreds of million mm -hmm. dollars in a catch-up game. But there's no revenue. It's exactly, right? but that's and then, the point. Hang on, and then there's one level further down that even after you've <laughs> built a model, then someone's got to wrap it in decent software yeah. to sell it to individual businesses. And that's, you know, at scale one, two years away. So going back to my point, I don't know anything about this quarter's earnings season, but it's nothing to do with AI. <laughs> Spoken <laughs> like a true venture capitalist. Yeah. Nilay, uh, I mean, investors may be thinking about this in a different way. They, they may think that this is no longer secular. This is no longer way off in the future. And that's, you know, what I worry about is that NVIDIA brought this right in front of them and said, listen, if we can book billions of dollars in revenue, why can't you? <laughs> Yeah, and it, I look. I agree that Nvidia is the tip of the spear here. You got to buy the hardware to even run the models. You know what's very notable here, though, and I point this out to every investor thinking about making AI investment at this moment. You know, a company is not profitable is OpenAI, which is at the heart of this <laughs> entire boom. Right? They have not figured out a sustainable multiple business model that makes all this work. So Nvidia is the the start of it because they're selling hardware. They can sell you atoms. OpenAI is selling the model, right? They're selling a lot of this out, outbound capability, and they're not going to see the multiple yet. It's a long way to go for everyone else. Um, Neela, you said the magic word, unprofitable. That is something that I've been talking about a lot lately. So let's talk about it. The return, let's call it, of speculative tech. 
Carvana, Coinbase, Opendoor, Robinhood. These are some of the pandemic darlings that in 2022 were left for dead by investors. But guess what? They are back. The journal points to crypto and mean stocks as well, says investors. They are feeling bold again. A Delaware court also just rejecting AMC's deal to convert Ape shares to common stock, sending AMC shares surging after hours while Ape is sinking. It feels all very 2021 again. Rory, I have actually been looking at the fundamentals of companies like Carvana, um, not much has changed. It's still unprofitable. Revenue is actually declining. What does this look like? Does it end like it did in 2022? And that is sort of this big deflation. You see this at the earliest stages. Yeah. And I think it, it's super hard to opine on, you know, some of these public stocks in 2023. And I think a lot of it is. I saw a really nice tweet that just showed the two-year trajectory for most of these stocks. It turns out if something is valued at X and it goes down to one-tenth of X, it's entirely plausible that it'll go back to two-tenths of X, right? <laughs> but if you look at over the spectrum of two years, and you said it, Carvana being an interesting example, it's just way down from the high, right? So it's basically in the margin of error of the noise. It's like, the world is awesome. Oh, the world is terrible. It's going to end on Friday. Oh, it turns out it's not going to end until a week next Friday. Let's double the stock. Right. I think there's a lot of noise in the system on some of these companies, like you just said. They were overloved, underloved, and people are just trying to figure out where they should be. Yeah, and Neil, where are they now? I mean, we talk about, yes, they've come back this year, but um, Rory and I were talking about Pandemic Mountain, right? What we're seeing this year is just a blip at the end of that. So how does this shake out? Should investors be worried, given that there's still a lot of these names that I just mentioned, they're still nowhere close to where they were in 2021? Yeah, I my personal theory is that this all just tracks with inflation, like inflation's down, so meme stocks are up. And maybe that's just as simple as that. I think there's a lot of investors out there who like playing the playing these games. They're not looking at the fundamentals. And a stock like Ape on Barbenheimer weekend seems like a fun <laughs> place to park some money and get an exit on, on Wednesday. And, and maybe it's just as simple as that. That's such a good point. We've got two, you know, huge movie releases. We've got a meme stock going crazy again. Steve Kovac, it feels like 2021. How did we end up here? But it's not like we said in terms of valuation. So big tech, is it going to carry the season? I guess that's what it comes back to, because they're the ones that make up the most of this market. As you like to say often, as Apple goes, so does the market. Yeah, and, and that's exactly right. And we, we'll get Apple, not next week, but the week after. But I, again, I'm looking at Microsoft and, and Meta. Meta is going to give us a really good read on the ad market. Microsoft's going to give us a good read on their cloud and IT spend and how small businesses are doing. So we're still going to get a taste of the macro here. Also, I would just add uh, to Neelai's point, it, it does track inflation, these meme stocks. It also tracks the, the dollar getting a little bit weaker. So yes. these are big multinational co co uh, companies. So this really, the dollar getting weaker really benefits Apple. Remember last year, they had to raise prices uh, on the iPhone in some of their markets because of that dollar exchange rate and so yeah. the, and this foreign exchange headwind. So the, any kind of commentary we get from Apple and the rest on how foreign exchange is easing up for them is going to be really interesting, too. I'm glad you bring that up. Stay tuned to our audience because we're going to be talking more about that a little bit later. For now, guys, gentlemen, happy weekend. Thank you so much for being here with me, Rory, Neelai, and Steve. Thank you. Coming up. Whatever happened to the ride-sharing wars? These days, it's feeling more like a ride-sharing duopoly, kind of like Coke and Pepsi, two dominant, pretty interchangeable players, one more dominant than the other. We have an exclusive with Lyft's new CEO, David Risher, as he gets set up, he gets set to wrap up his first 100 days on the job. We're just getting started on the CNBC special, Taking Stock. Coming up, don't call it a comeback. Lyft's in need of a lift. 
But can the company hit the gas with a new CEO in the driver's seat? Plus, dollar dollar bills, y'all. Talking the greenbacks impact on tech. And they say everything's bigger in Texas, including manufacturing. How chips have taken over the Lone Star State when Tech Check returns. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Back in the day, ride-sharing competition, it was fierce. Uber and Lyft, each raising billions of dollars in the private markets. And they were seen as some of the most innovative and disruptive companies in America. Lyft positioned itself as more of the nice guy, with Uber taking the brunt of the PR and regulatory crises. It led to that delete Uber hashtag, if you remember, Lyft gaining market share and Uber founder and CEO Travis Kalanick eventually stepping down. Since then, though, the gap has only widened. Look at that, with Uber pulling away as the clear number one after growing its food delivery business, Lyft in a far second. In fact, Lyft's market cap, now under $5 billion, is less than the $7.3 billion it has raised over its lifetime. So almost 100 days ago, Lyft's co-founders handed over the CEO job to David Risher, who spent much of his career running a nonprofit. He held positions at Amazon and Microsoft. Since then, he has cut prices, announced layoffs, I sat down with him to discuss what comes next. So what's telling you that riders are back? A couple things. I mean, I can see the numbers. And, you know, we've got third-party data out there that's showing. I think when I started, we were at about a 26th share, then 27, then 28, 29. We're at about 31 right now. So that's great. It's a little zero-sum when you start talking about it that way. I think maybe even more interestingly is, from what we can tell, the whole market is growing, which is frankly even better because, again, it suggests people are getting out and about. Why are they coming back? I think part of it is we've got better pricing than we had for a while, right? And everybody likes a deal. One of the nice things that better pricing does means that you typically get picked up a little faster. That sounds counterintuitive, but the more riders you have, the more drivers you have, the more drivers you have, the faster you get picked up. So everybody likes that. That flywheel is and going. And that flywheel goes, exactly. And then, for example, we have a product called Wait and Save, which if you haven't used our app for a while, you should. It allows you to save a little bit of money and everyone likes a deal. And about 30% of our rides are wait and save rides, which means that people are liking not just the standard classic, but they're also liking having a little choice and being able to save some money, which in inflationary times really matters. Mm -hmm. So you guys have been more aggressive on pricing. That's one of the things you told me when we sat here a few months ago and you were just starting, yep. that you wanted to be there. Yep. One back a few percentage points in terms of market share. Um, what do you do now? Can you get more aggressive in pricing? So our strategy is not really to compete on price, honestly. We want price to sort of be off the table. In fact... But it's been the most effective so far. And it definitely is a great starting point, right? You've got to start there. If you price high, people tend not to use you. But the way I think about it is, 
I really think it is in everyone's best interest to have Uber and Lyft on their phone. And I really do think that. Look, there are going to be times, you know, a holiday, 4th of July, you know, crazy event, whatever it is. One of us might let you down. I hope it's never, ever us. But I really hope you've got choice because guess what? That people like that. And so I think if you start thinking of it that way, then you'll understand how we're starting to think about our kind of almost reintroduction to the world is we deserve a place on that phone. What do you want to accomplish in the next 100 days? <laughs> there you go. Now, so that's a little, ins- that's a little personal. <laughs> uh, so the real focus is on execution. So just doing better and better so that wait times go down, so that prices stay good and all the rest. And then what you're going to start to see are some more differentiated services. And what I mean by that is, you know, we both, Uber and Lyft, have a, have a, a basic product that picks you up and takes you where you want to go. We're trying to get a, you know, a little cleverer about that, innovation. So for example, in some airports now where you touch down on the tarmac, like in Austin or in Chicago or in New York, you can actually open the Lyft app and we will start to get a, a ride coming for you so that by the time you get to the edge of the airport, you know, to pass baggage claim into the, to the curb, the car is waiting uh, there for you. So that's the type of differentiation that allows us to say, you know what, you really do need both apps on your phone because sometimes one's going to do a better job. So is your aim to increase your market share? You're at about 30% now. Mm-hmm. How high does that get, do you think, for you to be happy? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I don't think of market share as an end goal. I think of it just as an indicator that we're doing well for riders and drivers. I like it when it goes up because it tells me that we're doing well. But I'm just as excited, and the whole team is, in growing the whole market and getting more people using rideshare more than the once or twice a week that most people do right now. Mm-hmm. When you say that you want people to have both apps on your phone, mm-hmm. um, are you still in competition with Uber, or are you now happy to be the number two player? Um, no, we're in competition with Uber. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. I, you know, look, being number two is not a terrible thing. Pepsi's a pretty big business, you know what I mean? So you can have a great, great business and be number two. Uh, over time, I hope we do such a good job that you know our positions switch places, but that's not really the goal. The goal is better every single day for riders and drivers, and the better we do, the more our share will go up. Wall Street has seen this. You're- share price has diverged. A lot of that came before you were in this position. But even now, Uber is a nearly $100 billion company. Lyft is less than $5 billion. I mean, that's less than the amount that Lyft has raised in its entire lifetime. It's more than $7 billion. How do you even begin to close that gap? I think this market wants two people. I think for drivers and for riders, they want two strong rideshare apps. It helps drivers because they'll earn more that way. We'll compete against each other for their, their, their business. And it helps drivers or riders because they'll get picked up faster and they'll have more choices. So that's where I sort of start. And then I think both companies are going to try to differentiate on different ways besides just basic price stuff. And I think that's really how you're going to see this play out. When you look back over sort of Lyft's lifetime, um, do you think that the focus on one product rides and one market, in retrospect, was that the wrong strategy? Look, I think focus is generally a good thing. I think when a pandemic hits, you've got to look at yourself and say, do we have the right tools? And I think that was a very, very difficult time for Lyft because we really only had one thing, which is transportation, and nobody wanted to go anywhere. So looked at through that lens, you'd say, gosh, you know, we could, we could have done something different. But where we are right now, I love it. I love it because I think there's so much innovation left. So the founders, uh, Logan Green and John Zimmer, yeah. um, they still retain control of the company through their voting shares. Are they engaged in the daily business? Super engaged. Yeah, well, not in the daily business. They're engaged because they're board members. And they've been so gracious about saying, look, 
our big value add at this point, aside from everything we've done over the last 15 years, is to turn it over and then be advisors. I was just on the phone with, with uh, Logan this morning talking about an upcoming board meeting. Um, I'm talking to John tomorrow about some things we're working on. So you know, we're super uh, communicative, but they know whose job it is to run the business, and that's mine. How do you think your leadership style differs from theirs? Uh, you know, I am both blessed and cursed with an ability or inclination to make decisions quickly. It can be a curse because sometimes you get a little ahead of yourself, but I would say on balance in a fast moving industry like ours, making quick decisions is, um, is, is a strength. And that's something I think I bring to the table. I also would say I am a very customer obsessed person. I, you know, I spent many years at Amazon. I sort of learned at the altar. And I feel like that's something that really matters to me, making sure that whatever we do is customers first. Um, you know, I'd say those are sort of my strengths. Were they slow? Is that why the gap widened so much over the last few years? You know, uh, it's a provocative question. I don't know that they were slow, but I think that, you, you know, it was their own company, right? So it, it, they, they, they needed to be, and in a sense have to be sort of thoughtful. In a way, I get a little bit of a pass. I'm like, you know what, I'm building on what you've built, and I can kind of move things forward in a way that's a little different. Is Lyft still innovative? What are some yeah. of the big innovations you're thinking about? I think there's a lot of innovation to be done around uh, older people, older Americans, uh, because as people get old, they tend not to like to drive as much, or maybe more precisely put, their kids don't want them to drive as much. So I think there's some interesting things to be done there. I think artificial intelligence gives us an enormous opportunity. And I'll just give you a specific thing. Drivers want to earn more. We know that. Imagine a world where you get a personalized report as a driver saying, here are some things that if over the next couple of weeks you did, you'll earn 10% more. Maybe instead of driving on a Tuesday, drive on a Wednesday. Or we see sometimes you alternate between mornings and evenings. If you shift it a little bit towards evenings and towards Saturday night and away from Saturday morning, you'd probably earn 10% more. And that's the sort of thing that I think AI can do to help our drivers become um, to be better drivers. DoorDash in the gig economy is testing a new hourly wage option. Is that something that you're looking at? We're thinking about things like that. Yeah, are there ways? That's a particular thing that they're doing. I don't want to comment on that. But we're certainly looking at ways to give. But it's giving the option to drivers. So quite simply, are you thinking about giving the option to drivers of an hourly wage? Let me say it in a different way. We're thinking of options we can give to drivers that, that give them a guarantee of their wages. And by the way, which, which they have here in California. So here in California, Proposition 22 basically mandates a certain you know, kind of minimum wage effectively. And we're thinking, how can we take some of the learnings from that and apply them more broadly? I spoke to Emil Michael last week, mm. and he's been very critical of your competitor under Dara Khazar Shahi, but he recently turned bullish. Mm. I asked him why, and he cited Lyft's demise. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to that? I think he's wrong. I think it's wrong. And look, I understand people look at data points, but I think a funny, and, and they kind of extrapolate out. I think what's curious about that is the data points for us, 26 share, 28 share, 30 share, 31 share, I think it's the opposite. And I think both companies are going to be more successful as a result. Just think about this. Every time we recruit a new driver onto the platform, it's actually the case Uber does better because they have more drivers that they can kind of, you know, uh, activate if they want to, and vice versa. So this is not a market where one wants to put the other out of business. <laughs> Last question for you, I guess, is um, we're kind of in an interesting moment, right? Last year was all about, and even this year has been about job cuts, and yep. companies are trying to get more efficient. I know you're in a quiet period, so you can't speak specifically about financials. Um, but do you have the right size team now? 
Um, do you think that you guys are operating efficient, efficiently, or is there more to go on that front? We've got a good-sized team now. Yeah, I mean, I won't be specific, and one never says never, but that's not the focus now. The focus is on taking what we've got and building from it, building great experiences for riders, great for drivers, and I think we've got a great team doing it. Now, of course, Uber is not without its own share of struggles. It went public at $45 a share, spent much of its public life under there. And after four years, it's now just at $47 a share. Our big thanks to Lyft CEO David Risher for that in-depth conversation. Ahead, more big tech earnings next week, including Alphabet and Meta. And coming up on the show, could there be another economic tailwind for those stocks in particular? Steve Kovac hinted at it earlier in the show. We will discuss. Stay with us. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. Signs that the wall of worry that hit tech stocks in 2022 may slowly be coming down. Climbing interest rates, profitability, dollar strength, those were some of the factors that hit the complex hard last year. Now, however, investors seeing light at the end of the tunnel. The Federal Reserve is thought to be near the end of its rate height cycle amid softening inflation, unprofitable tech companies. In many cases, they're narrowing losses, and the dollar index is trading near 15-month lows. That is a positive for tech companies that generate more than 50% of their revenue abroad. That's the highest share among all S&P 500 sectors. When the dollar's stronger, sales earned overseas in non-dollar currencies, they're worth less. So the opposite is also true. When the dollar weakens, those sales are worth more. So in 2022, amid dollar strength, billions were wiped off quarterly earnings of U.S. companies. Will the weaker dollar now be a boon this season, or is it already baked in? Let's talk to Jeremy Schwartz, Wisdom Tree CIO. Jeremy, what do you think? Does the dollar matter the same way it did back in 2022 when you had other factors at play? We spent the first part of the show talking about this huge secular shift in artificial intelligence that investors now seem to be focused on. I was worried I was going to have to explain the impact, but you did a beautiful job there explaining exactly what's going on. And, you know, I do think last quarter was perhaps the peak of the hit that the tech companies were taking from the dollar. If you go back last year, there was a six-month period where the dollar was up 15%, and that was a huge, huge move. And that was a drag, I think, in the first quarter earnings. I think as you get later this year, it turns into a tailwind instead of a headwind. Uh, I think this quarter, it's a modest, modest tailwind, perhaps, but I think later in the year, as these sort of lower dollar figures average into their sales and their profits, Uh, I think it becomes a much bigger boost to their earnings. Jeremy, we saw even some dollar strength this week coming off a low base, but the Nasdaq also underperformed. Do you think that that's correlated? You know, these very short term moves, it's always very tough to pinpoint an exact reason why things are moving. I I do think I've said the dollar has been one of the better hedges to things like the S&P 500 because so much more of our earnings are coming abroad and you hit it exactly that the tech sector is the sector with the most earnings from abroad. So, you know, you could say they are extra hit. I do think the dollar serves an interesting role in portfolios to diversify this earnings. A lot of people take currency risk when they go overseas, where I say the dollar is the better diversifier uh, because of that inverse correlation between earnings and 
and the dollar. Uh, but on the very short term move, it's hard to say any single factor is the, the key driver. Let's talk a little bit more broadly, because the question we're constantly asking here, many investors are asking is, are we back in bubble territory after this downturn? And you hear a lot of talk about the dot-com bubble and how valuations yeah. became so inflated. We did our own research on this, and I'm sure looked at many of the things you look at, bigger cash piles, more profitability this time around. But you think we're only halfway to those multiples. Why? Oh, you picked that up in my Twitter thread. I did say- We're watching. Um, Our producers if, always watching. <laughs> if you go to the forward PE ratios back, you know, back in 2000, the forward PEs of the tech sector, which is now 40% of the market, the expanded tech sector. This is, includes like Amazon and Meta, who were reclassified out of tech to communications services and, and consumer discretionary. They were in the 60s on a forward P basis back in 2000. We're today at 30. Uh, and so it's it's- when people say that relative performance, yes, some of the outperformance of the Nasdaq and others look like February 2000 versus small caps, but the PEs, the multiples, these companies are making more money. And so I think it's half the multiple of where it was back in 2000. Yeah. And for that reason, you know, we call companies like Apple nation states and the mega caps are being treated like defense stocks. Do you think that that's accurate? Do you think that investors should be treating them as such? They do have these pristine balance sheets and all these quality indexes. We launched a, a quality growth index that includes all these mag magnificent seven stocks that you're seeing. And because we're looking at profitability, uh, low balance sheet leverage, low debt, they, they are very cash rich, as you said. So there's a lot of reasons to say these are very good borrowers. When they're borrowing, they can pay back their debt. And so some people thought during the crisis, hey, you want to be with tech companies more so than governments. And, and there's something to that. But um, you know, I, I, so I do think these companies are very high profitability, very high quality companies. Well, Jeremy, thank you. We'll see what happens next week as earnings roll out. Thanks for being with us and have a good weekend. Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks, Deidre. As we had a break, check out shares of SiriusXM. Those shares looking like they're starting to come down in price after shooting up 48% just this week. The sudden move higher could be due in part to a short covering move, along with the unwinding of a spread trade that involved Liberty SiriusXM. 34% of those shares are held short. Don't go anywhere. More from Tech Check at One Market in San Francisco is coming up. Coming up, China on the attack as the U.S. government is targeted in another cyber attack. Talking the latest battlefront in the cyber war. Plus, forget the cowboys, how Texas is taking over the chip sector. And Silicon Valley on drugs, how ketamine, LSD, and mushrooms are taking over corporate culture. When Tech Check returns. Welcome back. Amid news of chip companies delaying their planned U.S. manufacturing hubs, one state is standing out for having more chip-making facilities than any other. That's Texas. Our digital video team has that story. Here is CNBC.com's Katie Tarasov. We've got well over 400 acres here, and we are, in fact, in ballroom number one. Uh, there will be three other factories, one to the north and two of them that are to the west of this. There's a boom happening in Texas, and we're not talking about oil. America's second biggest state has become the hub for manufacturing the country's tiniest microchips. Now because we have ports, uh, because we have access to materials, uh, because of our low cost of new business, uh, we are best situated uh, to lead uh, this next generation of chip manufacturing. The integrated circuit was invented at Texas Instruments more than 60 years ago. 
but it's Silicon Valley in California that's long held the title for, well, advancing technology on silicon. But as the cost of making smaller and smaller transistors has skyrocketed, so has the size of the machines and the amount of land needed to do it. I mean, Texas is spacious, it's huge, and then it has great uh, support for ease of business. Now, manufacturing chips on U.S. soil is a growing priority amid mounting geopolitical tensions between China and Taiwan. The CHIPS Act set aside more than $52 billion for reshoring production. Samsung, Texas Instruments, Infineon, Global Wafers, NXP, Applied Materials, all these chip giants have ramped up operations in the Lone Star State. Apple and Amazon chose Texas for designing their custom chips, too. For that full story and the impact on the U.S. economy, you can head to CNBC.com or the CNBC YouTube page. Our video team does a great job on these long-form pieces. Well, well worth the watch. Coming up on the show, 90%. That is the number of cyber attacks that begin with email. But are the threats becoming too sophisticated for cybersecurity companies to handle? We'll discuss that. And take a look at the NASDAQ 100. Investors, they are looking ahead to next week when trading will begin on the newly rebalanced NASDAQ 100. We'll be right back. I'm not in a position to confirm that my own personal email uh, was hacked, but obviously there's been a hack at the Department of Commerce, which is very significant, uh, very complex. The FBI, Department of Justice, and Homeland Security are actively investigating this, so I'm not going to comment further since we're in the middle of an active investigation, except to say we take it incredibly seriously. That was Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo this morning on Squawk on the Street. News of the secretary's email breach coming as NBC News has confirmed that hackers also accessed the email account of the U.S. ambassador to China, Nicholas Burns. Both attacks being linked to China-based hackers taking part in a targeted intelligence gathering campaign. So how did this happen? And have these attacks become too sophisticated for our cybersecurity companies to manage. Let's bring in RuPaul Hollenbeck, president of cybersecurity firm Checkpoint Software. RuPaul, thanks for being with us. Walk us through how you think this happened or why the proper precautions were not in place. Hi, Deirdre. Thank you for having me. Um, absolutely. So government in general represents right now the highest number of ransomware attacks. What we saw last quarter alone was that one in 25 organizations was attacked and 90% of attacks are starting with phishing email. Why is that? Well, think about email. Email is actually the most vulnerable. It's the easiest way to get into your system. You've got access to email everywhere in your life, not just on your personal computer, but also on a mobile device and even on a wearable device. So it's just so pervasive and vulnerable to attack. Why is government so vulnerable? You said it's the highest number of ransomware attacks. Is the awareness, perhaps, is it not up to par as it is that in the private world? Well, I think it's twofold. So, Deirdre, if you think about governments around the world, they have access to broad citizen data. They are absolutely a target and the biggest one there is. And so mm. the, the attacks are actually going after where the broadest citizen data exists. Mm. On top of that, governments are under increasing scrutiny and pressure to protect those environments. That can be a confusing space where you're going to invest in cyber to be able to keep citizen data protected. 
right? So email attacks, that's usually someone opening something up and clicking on a link. And what I hear most from folks I talk to in cybersecurity is similar to what you're saying. It's human error, something the technology can't necessarily account for. So what's the solution? Right. So, you know, when we think of cybersecurity, we think about people first, then process, then technology. But the key is really people. It's important for people to be aware, to keep themselves secure through training, understanding, education. Processes inside of organizations and governments come about to keep those people secure. And so following the process. And mm -hmm. then where technology comes in is to actually secure the processes to ensure, to ensure security of the people. And so you really have to think about cybersecurity in that order, people, process, and then technology. Right, and RuPaul, while we have you, last question for you is, what are you seeing in terms of the spending environment um, when the economy, the macro backdrop got a little soft, some companies pulled back, are they leaning in now, or what are you seeing at, at your level? I see that organizations continue to lean in, uh, even though, uh, in this uncertain economy, there's questionable investment overall in technology. One place where we continue to see very steady investment, and in many cases increased investment, is in cybersecurity. As the threat landscape gets much broader and as bad actors continue to get more sophisticated, but so does development and investment in the R&D to keep those organizations secure. RuPaul, thanks so much for being with us. Have a nice weekend. RuPaul Holland back. Thank you. Coming up, Silicon Valley on drugs. How psychedelics have moved from an after-hours event squarely into corporate culture. You don't want to miss that one. We'll talk about it when we return. Welcome back. Psychedelics have been one of the buzziest topics in tech from the entrepreneurs that openly take them at work, microdosing to the startups trying to get them approval for medical reasons. Our Kate Rooney is here with this multi, multi-layered story. <laughs> a lot going on here, Dee. But if you think about psych psychedelics, you hear that word, you might think Woodstock, you might think about the 60s, but these drugs are entering the medical mainstream as companies chase FDA approval and entrepreneurs use them to gain an edge. Psilocybin, that's the active ingredient in psychedelic drugs like mushrooms, is being tested for treatment of mental illness. Researchers at Harvard and Mass General are among those studying the compounds. And despite a stigma around some of these drugs, they say there's proven upside. For those that it does help, it, can, it seems to have a tremendous impact. Um, you know, because these are folks who've tried other medications that just haven't worked for them. And so, you know, and this provides them the first relief that they've known in a long time. The space is attracting traditional biotech investors. A flood of venture capital money poured in back in 2020. It's really fallen off, though, in recent quarters. The publicly traded names, though, are benefiting from a recent recovery in biotech. They tend to be pretty much a binary bet on drug approval. But one founder telling me that they lag the broader sector because they might still be too controversial for big pharma. So if you look at what dominates biotech investing at the moment, it's like looking for those companies who are very soon, hopefully, be taken out by pharma. So the fact that pharma is very hesitant to move into psychedelics takes that fantasy, so to say, or that catalyst, that near-term catalyst away. Christian Engmeyer, who you just heard from there, says that some investors have been skeptical about some of the hype around these stocks. He compared it to what we see with AI or blockchain. And while the success 
of these companies very much relies on FDA approval. Some entrepreneurs are not waiting. Luxury retreats like Myco Meditations in Jamaica is where they're going. They can run you anywhere from $7,000 to $20,000 for a week. They go there sometimes to treat depression or use psilocybin to find deeper meaning. Beyond the pure therapeutic approach, um, those people that need to be, be, be perhaps step back a bit from life and take a broad view, be it the business that they run or be it their life in general, um, these big uh, therapeutic doses of psilocybin can certainly help create that perspective, lead to more creative flow of ideas. Doctors and experts we spoke to expect FDA approval within the next five years or so. The FDA also granted breakthrough therapy status to psilocybin and MDMA. That acknowledges the drug's potential and can streamline the approval process. Dee. That's a fascinating report. Kate, okay, talk to me a little bit more about this recreational side. Um, you know, you hear about VCs, founders, especially here in the Bay Area, yep. taking it at work yep. and just, you know, daily. Is that microdosing? I think you'd call that microdosing. I guess it depends on how much they're taking, but it seems to have become very much socially acceptable here. And right. one of the things that Myco Meditations was talking about, the CEO there was saying that it's, it's word of mouth. People are comfortable talking about this now at dinner parties, at cocktail parties, and they talk about the benefits if they've had, you know, used this to treat depression or had some sort of episode and have actually found benefits from this. He said it's very different from just taking, you know, normal drugs and normal mm -hmm. prescribed drugs to say, I actually did this. And by the way, you can go to this retreat or you can go to someone in the U.S., it's very much done here in the U.S., even with therapists sort of underground. Right. But we live in California yeah. and we communicate a lot with VC investors, et cetera. So yeah. it, it almost feels normal to us to yeah. hear about this and talk about sort of the benefits. But right. in other parts of the country, I cannot imagine. I'm sure some people's eyes are popping at this and it does start to feel very normal, although it has been happening you know, for decades. You think of Steve Jobs, really, that one of the forefathers of tech out here. He was very open about his use right. of psychedelics and really attributed that and some of his creativity to those drugs. But, but you know, a lot of folks will write that off as, right. OK, tech guy, entrepreneur who's yeah. doing this. But again, is there sort of an analogy you can draw to cannabis use, right? Yeah. A decade ago, it was less acceptable in some circles, yes, but now you're seeing state after state. It's really interesting that some of the investors in this space really want to draw the line and say, we're actually not cannabis. We're very different. This is supposed to be used for medical treatment and not for recreation. And they really warn against using it recreationally and treating it too lightly and saying it actually can be quite dangerous if you go and you macrodose or you take too much. And they try to draw the line, but where there is a big analogy and some, some quite strong parallels is with the regulatory environment. It's right. sort of a state-by-state -state approach. You're seeing some of these drugs being approved in Oregon and Colorado more likely that you see the state-level improvement similar to what we saw with cannabis. One of the charts you just showed us in that piece, yep. it was venture capital funding, right? Yep. It looked like it dropped off a cliff. Pretty much. These are the people using it, talking about all of its positive effects, looking for approval, et cetera. Yep. Why, why has that fallen so much? Seems like the hype cycle. They said a couple years ago, you saw, similar to what we saw with AI and blockchain, companies really just slapping psychedelics on their name because they wanted to get in on that. That has really dried up. Some of those companies went public, and then valuations have dried up. This is a quite speculative area of biotech. You've seen it in public markets. Risk is drying up, and you're seeing that in venture capital. It's been a lot harder to raise money and a lot harder to raise money for projects that aren't profitable either. As we've talked about this in a lot of different areas. Yep. Uh, Kate Rooney, thank you. Fascinating thank you. report. Uh, that does it for us. Thank you for watching uh, Tech Tech. We'll be back. Last call starts now. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.